We're going to open up to Ephesians 6 this morning. Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 4 will be our text, and then we'll step away from Ephesians uh, till the end of the year, focus on some Christmas themes till the end of the year, and then we'll finish up Ephesians in January with the armor of God. But uh, Ephesians 6, 1 through 4 is going to be our text this morning. That can be found on page 1162 if you're using a pew Bible. Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, I invite you now to hear the holy, inspired, and inerrant word of God read for you. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Dear congregation, uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, the Apostle Paul has told us that as Christians we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Since then, Paul has been showing us that this mutual submission, which is to characterize our lives as Christians, it it does not negate the God-established authority structures of this world. No, it's it's instead to be be lived out within the God-established authority structures of this world. And, And so Paul tells us what mutual submission will look like in the marriage relationship. It looks like wives submitting to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. It looks like wives, you know, lining up behind their husbands and acknowledging their husbands as the leader of the home and the head of the marriage relationship. And it it looks like husbands, in turn, leading their wives in a selfish and sacrificial way that is concerned with her well-being over and above his own. And then last week, we looked at what mutual submission looks like in, in the workplace. It looks, like, it looks like slaves or employees obeying their masters with respect and doing their work with single-minded devotion as if they're working for Christ. And it looks like masters or bosses, in turn, treating those who work for them like real people who have value and worth and dignity in the sight of God. In between those two relationships, that that marriage relationship and the, the workplace relationship, Paul tells us what mutual submission looks like in the home. He tells us what this mutual submission looks like in the relationship that exists between parents and children, children and parents. And that's what we see in our text this morning. Here, Paul is telling children and parents how to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And you'll notice Paul speaks first to children. That's the first word of our text, isn't it? It's, it's children. And I want you to notice that, boys and girls. Here, God's word is addressing you directly. 
Paul doesn't say, parents, tell your children to obey you in the Lord for this is right. No, Paul speaks right to you, boys and girls. He says, children, I'm talking to you, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Now that said, children, before we hear together what Paul says to you, we need to bring your parents back into the conversation for just a second. Is that right? Can we let your parents back in? There's something your parents need to hear along with you, and it's this, all right? These letters which Paul wrote to the various churches, letters like Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and so on, these letters were intended to be read in the corporate gathering of God's people for worship. And so this letter might have been sent to the church in Ephesus, and one of the elders of the church in Ephesus would have taken this letter, and in the, the, the gathering of God's people for worship, he might have stood kind of in a similar place to where I'm standing this morning, and he would have read this letter that Paul wrote to the church. He would have read it to the congregation. It would have functioned, we might say, as, as that morning's sermon, all right? That's that's how these letters were distributed uh, originally. And the fact that Paul here addresses children then tells us what? Well, it tells us, doesn't it, that children were present in the corporate gathering and worship of God's people. Children would have been in here to hear this portion of the service. Now, uh, here at, at North Street, uh, this is a church which, which values having children in the corporate gathering of God's people. All right, that's why we don't have children's church on Sunday mornings. We do have it on Sunday nights. I think that's a freedom afforded to us from having two services. Uh, but we don't have it on Sunday mornings. And let's be honest, we generally have more children uh, in church on Sunday mornings than we do on Sunday evenings. All right, but we have our children here in worship with us. Now, in the little over a year that I've been here, I have on two occasions spoke with visitors who have said, we really like your church. We really don't like it that you don't have children's church. And that's the hang up, right? We want to send our children out uh, during the sermon. That's a big deal for us. And I said, okay, you know, that's, that's understand that. That's what this church believes. And, and let's be honest, that's what most churches do, isn't it? Most churches have a children's church, you get to this point of the sermon, most of the children are, are gone, uh, and, and of course most churches also don't have a Sunday evening service, and therefore what? Therefore most of these children we're sending out are never, never sitting under the preaching of God's word. And therefore if, if their pastor was preaching on the text I am this morning, many of those children who Paul is speaking to wouldn't even be in here to hear Paul speaking to them, would he? Of course there are, there are some churches generally bigger, bigger non-denominational churches who go even farther than we do. They don't just send the kids out for the sermon portion. Uh, they, they have a different worship service for every age group on Sunday. I've, I've walked into these churches, these big, we'd call them mega churches, non-denominational churches, and uh, you walk in the front door and you see a sign. If, you're, if, you're, if your kid is in pre-K through second grade, send them to this room. If your kid is in third through fifth grade, send them to this room. If your kid is in middle school, make sure they go to this room. And if your kid is in high school, you know, send them to the gym uh, or something. 
right? Uh, that's what a lot of churches do. They, they, they segregate the worship service according to age. I also recall a conversation I had with a friend some years ago. His church got a new pastor. The pastor came in with new ideas. One of the pastor's ideas was, hey, let's have Sunday school during the worship service. And so that's what his church was doing. They were having Sunday school for the kids during the worship service. The kids and the teachers were downstairs or wherever they had to go. The adults were worshiping. That wasn't even a what we might call megachurch. That was just simply an RCA church about the same size uh, as this one. Now, my friend told me this, and I remember thinking to myself, and even when I walk into a big megachurch and see 16 different worship services going on, I think to myself, what a terribly unbiblical idea. <laughs> Sometimes we're too smart for our own good, aren't we? Because the pattern set before us in Scripture is clear. We see it here in Ephesians 6. Children are to be present in the worship service. They are part of the congregation of God's people. God's word has things to say to them, therefore they should be here. And so let me just gush for a minute. I'm, I'm glad that our kids don't go out on Sunday mornings. I'm glad our kids are in here, and please don't ever, ever, ever feel ashamed if your kid is restless, if your kid is making noise, if your kid drops a hymnal onto the floor and everybody stares at you while I'm preaching. Don't ever feel ashamed of that, all right? I want it no other way. And if you are one of those people who gets grumpy about those things, and I've had, I've had people say to me, Pastor, those people's kids are so annoying. You know what I say to you? Stop being a curmudgeon. Nobody likes a curmudgeon. If you want to go to a church with no kids, they're not hard to find, go find one. Kids making noise in church is a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. Kids need to be in here. And so... Uh, Good work to you folks here who've determined to have your kids in here on Sunday. Now, boys and girls, there's one more thing we need your parents to hear, okay? One more thing we need your parents to hear, then I'm coming back to you. Uh, we all need to see that Paul here addresses children. That would be boys and girls. The Greek word is technon. It, it, it means children. There are words Paul could have used to address just boys or sons, he doesn't use those words, he addresses children, boys and girls. That might not sound like that big of a deal to you uh, in our day, uh, but in the first century, this was very countercultural. Girls were poorly regarded, all right? In a letter that's been discovered from about the time Christ was born, uh, a Greek man named Hilario writes to his wife this, I beg and beseech you to take care of our children. As soon as I receive wages, I will send them to you. If the baby is born, if it's a boy, let it live. If it's a girl, throw it out. That, that was the attitude of the first century Greco-Roman world to girls. If it's a girl, throw them out. Now, I'm not really sure how they thought they could get by and keep their society going without girls, it seems kind of, kind of foolish, but that, that was the attitude. And yet Paul here addresses not boys or sons, but children. He says boys and girls, that, that's who he's speaking to. And in this we're reminded, aren't we, once again, that those whom this world deems insignificant and expendable have worth and have value and have dignity in God's sight and therefore they ought to have it in ours as well. We see that right in the word children. 
All right, children, boys and girls, let's get back to you. The Apostle Paul is speaking to you. God's word here is speaking to you. This is what God's word says to you, boys and girls. Obey your parents. Obey your parents. What does that mean? Well, I think you know what it means, but at the same time, a a little story might help bring it home. Matthew uh, chapter eight, we're told, and when Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And uh, behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. You know where Jesus was? Jesus, Jesus was asleep. The disciples went to him and woke him. They said, save us, Lord, for we're perishing. And Jesus said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then we're told Jesus arose, he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. And the disciples were amazed. And the disciples said, what sort of man is this, that even the wind and the waves obey him? Boys and girls, that's what it means to obey your parents. It means to, to listen to them. It means to do what they say when they say it, even as the wind and the waves did what Jesus said when he said it. That means, boys and girls, if mom and dad say, go do your homework, do your homework. If they ask you to feed the dog, or 10 dogs, like we have right now, by the way, if you wanna hear that story, then feed the 10 dogs. Eight puppies, that's why. If they ask you to vacuum the carpet, vacuum the carpet. If they tell you to get ready for church, get ready for church. It's that simple. You're to to obey your parents. And children, Paul says, you're, you're to obey them in the Lord. What does that mean? Well, well, the phrase in the Lord means probably you're you're to obey them as a Christian. It means you're to obey them because you love Jesus and because you trust Jesus. Paul says, children, obey them in the Lord, obey them because you trust Jesus. And then he says, for this is right. And that phrase, for this is right, simply gets at the fact that obeying mom and dad is the right thing, the proper thing for a Christian boy or girl to do. So, so, so children, you're to obey mom and dad and you're to obey mom and dad because you love Jesus. And because that's what Jesus has told you to do. That's really what Paul's saying here. I told you all a story some weeks ago about about a woman I knew who who was determined to submit to her husband even though he was harsh and and even though he was unloving. And then I, I told you why she did that. She did that because she loved Jesus. And because that's what Jesus told her to do. It's the same for children. You're to obey your parents in the Lord. You're to obey your parents as believers in Jesus and as those who love Jesus and as those who understand that obeying your parents is a way for you to express your love for Jesus. I don't know if I I debated about whether or not I I should say this, right, or if I just presume everything's hunky-dory. But I'm speaking to children, and we'll we'll keep speaking to children. Children, with any horizontal relationship, okay, with any, with any relationship you have with another person, there is, there is a limit to your obedience. 
For instance, whenever, whenever someone asks us to go against God's will, whenever someone asks us to sin or to, to essentially help them sin, then we're, 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 we're not to obey. Right? And so we would say, right, speaking to children, you're never to, to obey those who abuse you or those who harm you. Those things you're to tell to your pastor or to the police or to your teacher, right? Now, I don't presume there's any of that going on here, but I'm speaking to children. And so we'll speak to the children that way, right? There's always a limit to these horizontal human relationships. But outside of that limit, right? It's simple. Children, you're, you're to obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now here's what you need to know, boys and girls. For sinners like you and me, this isn't as simple as it sounds. No, for sinners like us, obeying mom and dad is actually really, really, really hard. I'm gonna tell you a story, I'm gonna get in trouble for it when I get home, I'll pay her, every, she's getting to the point now where I'm gonna start paying her every time I use her as an example. All right, so Adrian, you got a dollar coming your way. If I do it twice, you get five. Uh, when Adrian was about two years old, we were camping, and uh, Adrian wandered off a little ways from our campsite, and I hollered, Adrian, come back! And as soon as I hollered, Adrian, come back, you know what she did? She looked at me, she turned around, and she ran the opposite direction. Now, why did she run the opposite direction? There was nothing for her the opposite direction. There wasn't like an ice cream truck the opposite direction. There wasn't a candy store the opposite direction. Grandma and grandpa weren't the opposite direction. There was nothing for her the opposite direction. Why did she turn around and run the opposite direction? The only reason I could think of is because dad said, Adri, come back. Right, that, that's it. Funny thing is, I took off after her to catch her. Before I could catch her, I say this is funny, she tripped, she fell on her face, she chipped a tooth, she's bawling, she's bloody, and I'm like, serves you right, right? <laughs> Should have listened to me. But again, what would possess her at such a young age to, to not listen to her dad? The answer is sin. Sin. We all have Sin in our hearts, don't we? We all have a sin nature. And what people with a sin nature do naturally is go against God's word. They disobey God's word. They do the things God has told them not to do. That's what people with a sin nature do. God says, obey your parents. Your parents say, hey, come back here. You have a sin nature. You're like, no way, I'm out of here. <laughs> right? That, that's why. And boys and girls, I want you this morning to see this sin nature in your heart. I want you to recognize how you often are tempted to react to mom and dad when they ask you to do something, right? It's not hard for you to say no to mom and dad, is it? Now, you might have learned better than to say no out loud, but you know how to say no in your mind and in your heart. You know how to grit your teeth and clench your fists when mom and dad ask you to do something. No one had to teach you to respond that way. You just naturally respond that way. 
I want you to recognize that tendency in your heart, okay? And recognizing it, I want you to realize two things. First thing I want you to realize, boys and girls, that is sin. We talk often about sin, don't we? We speak about sin so much. That is sin. Alive and well and at work in your heart. Second thing I want you to realize Because of that sin, you need Jesus. You need Jesus. You need Jesus to provide forgiveness for that sin and for all your sins, which he does through his precious blood shed on the cross for all who believe in him. You also need Jesus to help you turn away from that sin and to obey mom and dad and even more to obey God. And Jesus will help you do that too through the working of his Holy Spirit within you. Okay, boys and girls? When you see that that defiant nature at work in your heart, when you realize that you want to run the opposite way of your parents, even when the opposite way has absolutely nothing to give you, understand that sin. And because of that sin, you need Jesus. All right? Understand those two things. Let that sin drive you to Christ for forgiveness and for help in obeying God. Now, boys and girls, Paul's not done talking to you here, okay? I want you to see what Paul says next because because in the next verse, Paul goes on to cite the fifth commandment in order that he might set before you the blessing and the benefit of listening to mom and dad. This is what Paul says, verse two. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So uh, Paul here is, is reminding us of what's said in Deuteronomy chapter five, verse 16. In Deuteronomy 5, verse 16, this is what we read, fifth commandment given, honor your father and mother as the Lord commanded you, that your days may be long, and that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. So in Deuteronomy, there is attached to the fifth commandment a promise of quality of life and a promise of length of life. And Paul here in Ephesians 6 is simply reminding us of that when he says, honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment with a promise, And the promises are that it may go well with you, and the promises are that you may live long. That comes from Deuteronomy. Of course, here's the question, right? How are we to understand this promise? Because we all know godly people who obeyed mom and dad who died way too young, and we know wretched people who were terrible to mom and dad who lived to be old. So how should we understand this promise? Well, it seems to me that we should understand this promise as a promise of how the world generally works. Generally works. Not always works, but generally works. Certainly, when people honor their father and mother, it is generally true that they live longer and enjoy a higher quality of life. Kevin DeYoung says this, anyone in the social sciences field has to acknowledge that study after study has shown that the best predictor for health as an adult and for making it through school and for staying out of jail and for keeping off drugs is what happens in the home. 
Yes, there are all sorts of exceptions that go better or worse than what statistics say, but the best predictor, he says again, is whether you had a mom and a dad who loved you and were there for you, and whether you listened to them and followed them. This is the way the world works, end quote. William Hendrickson simplifies it a bit. He puts it this way. He says, when a devout father warns his son against the evils of chain smoking, excessive drinking, and sexual immorality, and the son disregards his father's advice, the son is following a course of life that as a rule does not lead to long life on earth. Very simple, boys and girls. If mom and dad tell you to stay away from the road, they're trying to protect your life, aren't they? They are. This is the way the world works. Okay, boys and girls, the most proven way to to live long and prosper, as someone once said, is to obey mom and dad, especially, especially if your mom and dad love Jesus. If your mom and dad love Jesus, if your mom and dad are full of God's wisdom as it's set forth in his word, boy, there ain't no better way for you to live long and prosper than to listen to your mom and dad. Kevin DeYoung says again, isn't it great how God motivates us to holiness? God could have just said, honor your father and mother or else. But instead, God says, let me lay this out for you. Let me tell you why you're going to want to do this so that you can experience blessing in life. God gives us a path towards that end, DeYoung says, and it starts with honoring mom and dad. So boys and girls, you're, 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 to, you're to obey mom and dad. You're to obey mom and dad because you love Jesus. You're to obey mom and dad because it's the right thing. Uh, for those who love Jesus to do, and you're to obey mom and dad because there is blessing in obeying mom and dad. Obeying mom and dad is, is the best way to have a long and prosperous life. That's what God tells you right here. Well, Paul also speaks to parents, doesn't he? There's always two sides to these relationships. There has been in the workplace, there was in the marriage, there is here as well. What does Paul say to parents? Well, let's first notice that, uh, that Paul doesn't address both parents, does he? He addresses boys and girls, children. Uh, he only addresses fathers in verse four. We don't see the word mothers. Why is this? Well, on the, on the one hand, in light of what Paul has just said about husbands and wives and in light of what he said about the husband being the head of the marriage relationship in the home, I would say that mothers are most certainly included in this exhortation. Uh, What is said to fathers here is absolutely going to apply uh, to mothers if the wife is submitting to her husband. If that's happening, they should be on the same page uh, regarding uh, the raising of their children. So moms, you're not off the hook. Don't think you're off the hook. You can't go to sleep. But still, let's notice that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he addresses fathers directly. And I would say the reason he does this is because the father is the one who is to set the direction in the home. 
The father is the one who ultimately says, this is the way we're going to raise our children. These will be our priorities for our children, and this will be how we go about achieving the ends we desire for our children. Okay, the father is the one who sets the direction in the home. This is why I, I, I commend Colin uh, today, uh, making profession of faith here when his children are baptized. Right? He didn't need to make profession of faith for his children to be baptized. Kathy's professing membership would have been sufficient for us to baptize their children, but Colin expressed a desire to, to lead his home this way, and so I do commend you. Thank you for being an example, even though I didn't ask you if you could be, uh, but uh, that's the kind of thing fathers are to do. They're to be that example. They're to set the direction uh, of the home. Now, the mother, yes, the mother might do much of the work in moving the home uh, in that direction, but it's the father who sets the direction. And this is, and this is uh, uh, then what Paul says to fathers and by extension to mothers. He says, do not provoke your children to anger. What's Paul saying here? Well, well, uh, parents, he's saying that even as you demand and expect your children's obedience, you're to do so in such a way that takes their feelings and their emotions into an account. Even as you expect your children's obedience, you're to, you're to ask reasonable things of them. Maybe you could say, even as you expect your children's obedience, you're to expect it gently. You're to, you're to be gentle with them. The fact is, parents, it's not hard to provoke our children, is it? It's not hard to agitate them. It would take me about three and a half seconds in the car to agitate every one of my children. It's not hard. I know exactly how to do it. And even though it, it happens, uh, and even though it will happen, Paul here is clear, that is not our goal as believing parents. That is not our aim as believing parents. We are not out to provoke our children to anger. William Hendrickson lists five ways that we provoke our children to anger. I'll run through them quickly just to hopefully bring it down to ground level. The first, the first is by overprotection. We would say that it's by being a helicopter parent. A former neighbor of ours was a helicopter parent. If you ever saw one of her children, she was, she was not far behind. If she was more than seven yards behind, she was running late that day, all right? She was always right on her children's heels, and that was fine until her son hit about seven or eight years old and began to realize what was going on, and that boy, that boy was so annoyed, and he was so embarrassed. Just let me play with my friends, mom. You don't need to watch us jump on the tramp right? With a, it's got a net around it, okay? You don't need to watch this jump. Paul speaks to people like this. He says, fathers, parents, do not provoke your children to anger. A second way we might provoke our children to anger is through favoritism. This, of course, is what got Isaac and Rebecca in trouble with Jacob and Esau. We see how that played out, and we all know people, don't we? And sometimes I even have to look inward at myself to make sure I'm not being these people. But we all know people who, who you know, they have maybe two or three or four kids and there's always one or two that they're talking about and, and, and if you didn't know better, the other ones, well, what happened to the other ones? What's going on? I remember a friend I had back in high school, he was so athletic and like, I found out like after knowing him for two and a half years that he had a sister and she wasn't athletic and she wasn't, she was kind of socially awkward and it was almost like they just kind of put her in the closet that's how it felt, but, but parents, right? Do not provoke your children to anger. 
A third way we might do it is through discouragement. It's easy to discourage our children that when they don't do well at something we think they should do well at. It's easy to discourage them when they, when they have another bad math test. It's easy to discourage them when, when they don't have a, a basketball game like we think they should have had. To people who, who discourage their children, Paul says, fathers, don't provoke your children. A fourth way we discourage our children is by neglect. Some parents are absent, aren't they? They work all the time. I coached softball in the past. I had a girl on my team for two years in a row. I knew her dad a little bit. In two years, I never saw him one time, not one time, at a softball game. He was self-employed. He didn't have to ask anybody to come. It made me so sad. Fathers, do not provoke your children. A fifth way, Hendricks has said, is by, is by bitter words and downright physical cruelty. Hopefully this, I'm guessing all the last four might, might come home to us. I hope this one doesn't go home to any one of us. If it does come home to you, may God have mercy on your soul and may you repent quick. But that's a way, right, that we, that we provoke our children to anger through bitter words and physical cruelty. Hendrickson says, court records are filled with people who provoke their children this way. Fathers, do not provoke your children. You know, there is, there is father another reason Paul might address only fathers here. I think we have to admit it. It's because if anyone is going to provoke the children to anger, it's most often us, isn't it? Us fathers, in many instances, tend to be a little harsher, a little more impatient, and a little more unreasonable with our children and their mothers. We're proud, right? We, we, we look to them for some value and worth and dignity. We have high expectations for them. And when they don't, when they don't meet them in a way we find sufficient, we, we can be difficult sometimes. Paul here is calling us to think about that when he says, fathers, don't provoke your children. Why not mothers? Because you're, you're, many of you fathers are the problem. You're the ones who do it and are prone to do it. So Paul says, fathers, do not provoke your children. And then he says this, this last instruction, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I said a moment ago, it's the father's job to set the direction of the home. Note well, fathers, this isn't something you're to think long and hard about because here Paul tells you exactly what direction your home should be heading. You are to raise your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You are to raise your children in the fear and knowledge of the Lord, the NIV says. Parents, let me ask if you understand this. Your primary job, your primary God-given job as a father and a mother is to help your children know and love and serve Jesus. Your, your first priority is to, is to impress upon your children the word of God and the way of salvation in Jesus Christ. There is nothing, nothing you should desire more for your children than to see them walking in the truth. Nothing. 
your greatest hope for your children, the thing you want for them more than anything else, to see them stand up here and do what Colin did this morning, profess faith in Jesus Christ, all right? It's not to be, it's not to be a, a, an all-American, it's not to be all-conference, it's not to be have a 4.0 GPA, right? It's not to get all these college scholarships, it's to do that. That is the supreme goal we're to have for our children, and we are to raise them, and we are to pray for them to that end. We're to do everything in our power to cause it to be. We can't cause it to be. Only God can cause that to be. But we're to do everything in our power to cause it to be. Honestly, think about it. I was sitting in the tree stand Friday night. Brooks is right next to me, and it just hit me, right? There is nothing else, nothing else that God calls you to do with and for your children. Nothing else. He does not call you to help them be star athletes. He does not call you to make sure they're super scholars. He doesn't call you to give them a big house, nice clothes, and fancy vacations. He gives you one command, one instruction for your children. Raise them to know and love and serve me. Does our relationship with our children reflect the, the one thing, the one thing God has given us to do? Or have the many things, and I'm not saying the many things are bad in and of themselves, but have the many things perhaps crowded out the one thing? Have the many things perhaps made the one thing, you know, an afterthought and a very brief devotion after dinner before basketball practice reality? For some of us, that's where the one thing is, isn't it? It's in just that quick two-minute devotion because we gotta get the kids to practice. That's the reality of the one thing in our lives. It has a very small place and a very small part. In my life, that's often the case. The many things God hasn't called me to do for my children often crowd out the one thing he has called me to do. And I've got to reckon with that this morning. I've had to reckon with that this past week. And some of you would do well also to reckon with it today. God says, you see those children I've given you? They are a heritage from the Lord. They are a blessing. And by, when it comes to raising them, there's one thing I want from you. Raise them to know me. Raise them to love my son and their savior, Jesus Christ, who died for their sins and rose again that they might have eternal life. May God help us give ourselves to the one thing. Let's pray. Our great and awesome God, we thank you for your word. We confess again this morning that as parents we have fallen short of your high and holy standard. Lord, many of us have not given ourselves to the one thing because we've given ourselves to many other things. We ask that you would forgive us for our sins and enable us to be obedient to you by the power of your Holy Spirit within our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.